my goal on a Sunday morning is not um, coming up with revolutionary thoughts or anything like that. It is what is the text clearly saying to us and then letting that have its impact on our life. When you read the Bible, there's just a... This is, this is communicated in, in Koine Greek, which was the common tongue, that it was meant to be written to be understood. Uh, that doesn't take magical powers to get what God, through the Apostle Paul, is trying to say to us. There's just some things he's trying to say that on the surface level, those are the things we're trying to put out in front for us to hear this morning. So that's what we're going to be laboring to just see what's in this text for our edification. So this is Philippians chapter 2, or chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Grass withers, flower fades, word of our God stands forever. So the gospel is not meant to be lived in mere abstraction. So we talk about what abstracting is. That's just thinking. When you when you abstract, it's like doing math problems. That's going to start soon for our school kids. Abstracting is putting things in your head and wiring them, figuring them out, and that's abstracting. The gospel is not meant to live only in abstraction, as though it's a concept we think about, we understand, we have repentance, which is kind of abstract, although it has very much a real turning away from, but faith, which is kind of an abstract reality. But the gospel is not meant to live only in abstraction, only in our heads. It's not a theory that we only are to think about and talk about. The gospel is to be thought about and talked about, but it is also to produce actual actions. That the gospel, as it is being abstracted, as it is being thought about, as it is being considered, as it is being proclaimed and hopefully received and believed in, as this message of who God is and who we are and what God has done through Christ to reconcile us to himself, as that's being communicated and thought upon and received, it is to also then have actual implications that it actually does something in the life of those who are thinking on these things. Paul, in several places in this letter, has already kind of hinted at this idea. If you go back to chapter 1, 
Verse 10, he's, he's praying for them so that they may approve what is excellent and so be found pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. There's a fruit of righteousness that Paul is expecting the Philippian church to have. Fruit is something that is you can see it is, it's observable, and it's also something that usually is able to be enjoyed by others. There's a fruit, there's something that happens as a result of this righteousness. Also in one twenty-seven, Paul gives them this admonition. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That there's something about their manner of living that that will will give witness to and be worthy of the gospel of Christ. They're not just to have speech that is worthy of the gospel, but their lives are to adorn the gospel. That you can have a message of the gospel, of who Jesus is and what he has done and how he reconciles you back to the Father through repentance and faith. You can have that message, but that the Christian life is not just this message. It certainly is. If the message is gone, it's not Christianity, but it is a message that has feet. Um, sometimes churches struggle to put forward both of these realities. You probably can all think of examples of this, but you'll often have a church that is all about um, social services and, and meeting the needs of, of the needy in the community. And they are all about outreach and helping and, and, and all of these wonderful programs that are very good. I would never say we shouldn't be involved in helping the needy. But oftentimes they put those things out front and have no doctrine, no understanding of the gospel, no call for repentance, no message of who Jesus is and what he has done. They, they're all strong on the deeds with no doctrine. And then you'll get churches over on this side who are all about the doctrine. And they've got, boy, they've got a systematic theology that they, they walk, that they have just, uh, that every Sunday they work through high-minded doctrinal things. And their, their doctrine is just very, very well thought out and, and faithful to scripture. But the, their deeds in the community are totally absent. And oftentimes you'll find in churches like that where they get all doctrine and no deeds, even the unity within the church is very difficult because it's, it's, all, it's all doctrine, all, all thought with no actual action. The big idea from our text this morning is you want to be a church that has both of these realities going forward. That sound doctrine, sound doctrine truly believed has feet. That's a big, that's my big fancy big idea. Sound doctrine truly believed has feet. And what that, it has a walk. It goes somewhere. That it is not enough to just, Paul has been building up. The sound doctrine, what it means to treasure Christ and to be found in Him and to enjoy Christ and, re- and count everything else as loss in comparison to knowing Christ. This high, lofty doctrine of joy in Jesus. And then we move on into chapter 4 where he's going to bring it down to the ground level. This joy in Jesus 
actually has implications for where the Philippian church is. This joy in Jesus that we've been pushing for has actual application and effect for where each one of you and each one of us in this room this morning, how we walk out our lives. Paul wraps this up. He calls for a ground level working out. There are two women mentioned here at this at verse two where we started, Euodia and Syntyche. These two women that Paul is calling for them, I entreat both of them, I entreat Euodia, I entreat Syntyche. There isn't some sort of preference going on from Paul. He's entreating both of them to agree in the Lord. It's not enough um, for, for theological to agreement to happen in this church. They, they're both women who are evidently in the church. They are both women who are quite influential in the church. These are women who have labored side by side with Paul, he says. But there evidently is something going on that they've got that Paul is calling for them to put their grievances behind them and labor forward for the cause of the gospel. The first place that sound doctrine truly believed with feet takes you is into the fellowship of the church. Sound doctrine truly believed has feet. And the first place that those feet are going to take you is into the fellowship of the church. I mean, here are these two ladies with some sort of a disagreement. We don't quite know what it is, but they're very important to the church with some sort of a disagreement. I doubt that it's a theological disagreement, like one of them thinks Jesus is God and the other one doesn't, because they wouldn't both be in the church. They're not laboring side by side for the gospel. And if Paul was aware of a doctrinal problem, We've never really experienced a Paul who's not afraid to just call out false doctrine. Like if one of them was believing something falsely about God, about Christ, and there was a disagreement, Paul would weigh in on the theological argument and call out what was going wrong. But there's evidently some sort of a personality conflict between these two women. It's a separate call. It's not doctrinal. Paul is calling for them to have agreement in the Lord. And what's going to happen Verse 3, I ask you, true companion. We don't know that might be an actual individual's name there in the Greek. Or it might be, it means fellow yoke, fellow yokeman or true companion. But there's this appeal to the church, to this true companion, to help these women. That they are in the fellowship. They've labored side by side with Clement and the rest of his fellow workers, and their names are in the book of life, as the gospel, sound doctrine, truly believed, has feet, it's brought them into the fellowship, and Paul is calling for them to have agreement in the Lord. There is a sense in which, when, when you partner together in the gospel, it takes on such preeminence, such importance, that all other preferences and all other differences, all other personalities take a back seat to the furtherance of this gospel. That the name of Jesus Christ would be heralded. That your preferences, your personality, likes and dislikes, those all go behind you. This has kind of been one of Paul's themes all through Philippians, right? Talking about unity. All of chapter 2 with Christ as this example to consider others more significant than yourself. Meaning that you take a back seat for the joy of the gospel to go forward. And he's saying, the reason why he brings this up, 
he's not just saying it's a theory, oh, the gospel produces unity. And so we'd all sit here and say, hmm, that's right, that's really interesting. The gospel produces unity. The gospel means my personality, my preferences, my likes, my dislikes go to the back seat so the gospel can go forward, but I don't like this person or this person or this person or this person. We don't get along. Paul's saying, no, the, the gospel has implications at a ground level. He's saying the gospel brings unity. Therefore, hey, you too, Yodia, Syntyche, agree in the Lord that this actually does work things out. We, we know practically of things like this happening. When, when family um, exists... And you have someone you've yoked, you've yoked your life together with them. You've produced children, whatever. You've just got a, a family uh, unit. Husbands and wives can say things to each other in ways that you would never let just a normal friend uh, say to you and remain their friend. And, and, and maybe they've, your, your spouse has had a bad day or um, doesn't feel well or something. And they say some snide remark. And if that person was just a friend of yours... You would, you'd get kind of further and further away. You know, I'm not going to spend as much time with you. I don't like the way that you behave. But when they're a spouse, what happens? Something bigger than just this friendship governs over the, the, the temporal rudeness that was there, doesn't it? And so that after apologies or honesty and time passes, you're able to, you're able to make amends. I mean, I don't want to... Darla and I sometimes, sometimes we don't get along. Um, and so there'll be a disagreement about something and, and usually she's mean to me. No, uh, <laughs> uh, no, I wish. Uh, but something, something has happened and we're just like, I'm not talking to you for a while. Do you ever have this happen? And so you just kind of split ways for the rest of the evening. And then by the time the evening's over, it's just kind of like, uh, Okay, I'm, I'm tired of being mad at you. You're tired of being mad at me. Let's 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 get let's say our apologies and move on because there's something bigger governing our relationship than just these temporal personalities and preferences and differences. And the gospel is that on steroids. This reality of who Christ is, who God is, and what He has done in reconciling us to Himself. The church is the place where sinners are saved by grace. They labor side by side for faith in the gospel and for others' joy in the gospel. And that huge driving force is so large, so magnetic, so powerful that it takes people like Euodia and Syntyche and all of us and it, it takes us and allows us to set aside preferences and personalities and likes and dislikes Aside because of the unity we have around this one great reality. And then these next five verses, or these next uh, five verses, four through nine, there are five or four um, realities that are characteristics of these Christians that I'm going to highlight just quickly. Five, in these next five verses, four characteristics. The first one in verse four says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Paul is not afraid of repetition. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Again, another consistent theme all throughout Philippians. We've seen unity and now we see rejoicing or joy in the gospel yet again. Now, remember, where's Paul writing this? He's in jail. End of chapter one. How's it going to turn out for Paul? He doesn't know. He might die in jail. He might get delivered. He thinks he probably will for the progress and joy for the Philippian church. But 
If it's to depart, it's to be with Christ, that's far better. He doesn't know how it's going to turn out. There are those who want to keep him there. There are those who are persecuting him. There are those within the Philippian church that are trying to mislead them into false doctrine and bring up more disunity. And Paul says, in the midst of all of these very hard realities, rejoice. Rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Paul is calling for a rejoicing refrain to be about the life of those who have come to know and treasure the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is this joy? It's not a, not a surface, happy, clappy, smiley, fakey sort of, oh, everything's wonderful. We all know people like that. They, they just... They come off abrasive. They're so happy, so, so amped all the time that you just, you, you know, there's something else going on. There's no, there's, this is not the kind of Christianity, the Christian joy that Paul is calling for. Christianity is not convincing ourselves that life isn't hard and full of sorrows and everything's great. That is not the Christian rejoicing that, that Paul is calling for. The Christian life can truly be very difficult, very sorrowful much of the time. But Christian rejoicing is a deep and abiding foundational joy in what we have in Jesus Christ in the gospel. It's a rejoicing with Paul who told us earlier in chapter 3 that nothing compares to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and being found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says at the end of chapter 3. His rejoicing is in knowing Christ and being found in Him. And that joy, that rejoicing, the knowing of Jesus, being found in Him, clothed in His righteousness, Christ's righteousness, not His own, brings a joy that no suffering or difficulty in this life can finally or fully take away from him. And so he calls for them, rejoice. Don't swerve from this great reality of what you have in Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He says, let your reasonableness, or that's possibly gentleness, be known to everyone. When your joy is in Christ over everything else, you can afford to be reasonable or gentle. Meaning again, I think probably that he has in mind the setting aside of your preferences. You have a gentleness. You're not trying to drive home every personal uh, mission that you have. You have a gentleness about you. You have your joy, your ultimate joy is in Christ. It cannot be stolen from you. And so if this particular circumstance doesn't go your way, you're able to be gentle and reasonable about it because you have that which is of most value to you. There's this reasonableness, gentleness. There is at the end of verse 5, this idea of, of Christ is imminent. He's, he's here. He's among us. This could be his return. It could just also be the reality of like Matthew 28, 20, where Christ says, behold, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But the first characteristic of the Christian is that they are rejoicing. They are rejoicing in the Lord always. The second characteristic is they are praying. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, in everything, 
By prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Oftentimes, this reference, he's probably familiar with this, with this reference because of verse 7, which says that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, it goes beyond what you can understand, it guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I, I pray this for people sometimes, maybe you have as well. When they're going through a trial, you lift them up and you pray that God would give them a peace that passes understanding. That's a phrase that's common Christianese. A peace that passes understanding, that it would guard their hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. But I don't know that that's the, dry, that's, that's the reality, that's the effect of, of, this, of this causal reality that is to be in the life of the Christian, which is this revolutionary idea again this morning, that a Christian, that sound doctrine with truly believed has feet, the feet, feet take you to prayer. That the idea that Paul is bringing up here is that not be anxious, but be prayerful in everything. In everything, the Christian is to be in prayer. Will God answer that prayer by always giving this great peace at the end? Well, in one way, you can look at it. If, if Paul is calling for this prayer to be had in everything, the person who is praying in everything already has the groundwork for the peace of God to be laid in their life. Because the person who is consistent in prayer knows, first of all, that they have needs they can't handle. This is out of my hands. If you're driven to prayer, it takes humility. Those who think they have it all under control don't bother with prayer. They're the gods of their own lives. They're the rulers of their universe. I don't need to pray. Why pray? If it's, up, if it's going to be, it's up to me. But the person who prays already knows there's something out of my hands. There's a need, there's something larger that I have that I can't handle. Secondly, they know that God is able to handle it. I have a need I can't handle. God certainly can handle it. And thirdly, that this God who gave so much to reconcile them back to himself, this God who can handle all of these things, even though we can't, if he gave so much in making us his own, how would he not give us what is ultimately best for us? And so when the person who's in prayer over everything has that already laid up in their life, the groundwork is already there for the peace of God that passes all understanding to guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The Christian who spends no time in prayer need not worry about knowing the peace of God. They've already made it quite evident that they are trusting in whatever peace they can produce on their own. What produces prayer? Those who see the truth of the gospel. I have a great need. God can handle it. Look at what he has done in Christ. And in that, on that basis, under that foundation, the Christian turns to prayer. You know, we, the Sunday school class that I was in this morning was talking about prayer and, and re- remarking that this is a praying church. And one, one thing I'd bring alongside of that, do you pray with someone ever? And I know that many people are religious in their devotion to prayer, and I want to commend everyone who does go home and is faithful to pray, takes this prayer list home and prays it, and gets prayer requests from other people. Sometimes what's most encouraging to me is to physically, audibly, not fi- audibly hear the prayers of other people. 
to be praying with others as together. It's part of this fellowship to be praying, bringing supplications. Do you pray along with your spouse? Do you pray along with your friends? When you go and see them and when you get a prayer request, here's, this is a revolutionary idea, I know. But when somebody says, would you be praying for me about this? Say, yes, let's pray. Dear God, Father, and right there, pray for them. The sound doctrine truly believed has feet. They are feet that are rejoicing. They are feet that are praying. Thirdly, they are feet that are meditating. Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think. Think on these things. There is this benediction that I've been saying for a few weeks. There is this call for the Christian to think about the things on this list. You can be far from God and think about many of these things. You can be have no interest in God, think about things that are excellent, think about things that are worthy of praise. In many ways, the... Um, the individual who goes home on a Sunday night as football season begins and, and goes and watches uh, amazing athletes do incredible feats of agility and strength. They are talking and thinking about things that are worthy of praise. So an unbeliever can do these things, but a, but a Christian cannot not do these things. That doesn't make them a Christian is what I'm saying. Just because you're at home enjoying the NFL, uh, golf is on, the FedEx Cup is is uh, winding down, and so uh, there's lots of good golf going on. It's amazing to watch these shots, but you don't need to know Jesus to think about things that are excellent. However, if you love Jesus, if you have sound doctrine that's truly, truly believed in, it's given you feet, you will do these things. These are the things you want to set your mind on. Because our minds, they're given tons of things to run to today. There's so much to give our minds to. And on one level, the battle isn't, isn't just for thinking on these things. At one level, the battle is just to think. <laughs> the battle is just to be thinking. Like we have so many things to put into our heads with podcasts and television and music and noise and radio and everything to just be putting into our heads that the battle on one level in our culture today is to just spend time to think. Do we even think? Think about these things. We are in a noisy culture. The television is just a noise box in so many ways that keeps you from ever thinking. You just have to just... It's very low bar of intelligence. They just put thoughts and ideas and storylines into your head. There's no thinking. There's the constant availability for noise. But Paul is saying, the Christian who has these feet formed by belief and sound doctrine will think. And what do they think about? All of these things that the gospel highlights. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and on and on we could go. This is, Paul is for... At the first level, for thinking, and then he's for thinking about these things that are praiseworthy. And lastly, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Sound doctrine, truly believed, has feet. Has feet that what? They, they, they walk out these things they believe. Paul ends this section the same way he began it, with the call for Christians with a call for Christians to have a faith that is not only in abstractions, but that what they learn and receive from Paul, they seek to display those things. A Christianity that holds forward only ideas, but never actually impacts the action of those who claim the name is a fake faith. So is this church, are we 
going to go forward as a beacon of light for this community? Will we exist to make much of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Will we exist for the joy of those in our community? A church that is not concretely centered and tethered to their joy in Christ will never be a church that displays Christ for all that He is worth. If we do not have this sound doctrine, if we do not have a right understanding of who we are as sinners before a holy and righteous God, what this holy and righteous as God God has done in His abundant mercy, in the giving of His Son for our sins, if we don't have that, we don't even have step one. But however, if we have this and it doesn't actually produce in us love for one another, love for the community, love to reach out and meet the needs of others, it is, a, it is a theology that is sound doctrine that is not truly believed because it has no feet. A church that holds only holds its theology in their heads and never actually has an impact of their service and love to one another will never display the true Christ either. Are there people in this fellowship? So Paul tries to narrow it down and get to Yodia and Syntyche. Are there people in this fellowship? Are there people right here that you have a grudge against? Don't, don't look right now and point at them. But are there people that right now, you think, you know, they, they annoyed me at whatever occasion. They, maybe they have a different personality than you do. Maybe they're loud and boisterous and you like to be quiet and reserved. Or maybe you're the loud and boisterous one and they're quiet and aloof and you think they've got something wrong with them. Letting division live in the life of the church is not honoring to God. And you can even take them through these steps. Rejoice. Rejoicing that God has saved them. Praying for them. Lifting them up in prayer. Um, think about their character. Think about the things about them that are just and, and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy. And then put your actions into love for this person. Paul, Paul is not content for the church of Jesus Christ to be full of false doctrine. I say amen to that. That's what we're about here on a Sunday morning, is trying to lift up the Word of God. Paul is not about the church of Christ to be full and filled to overflowing with false doctrine. Amen. Let us not be. Let us run from false doctrine. But he also isn't okay with the church being full of right doctrine that doesn't really impact who they are. And amen to that as well. Doctrine that doesn't drive the way you interact with life is doctrine isn't doctrine that you truly believe, whether it's right or not. This is Paul's desire for his churches, for his own life. My prayer is that it would be our desire as well. Let's pray. Father, help us as we seek to make much of the name of Jesus Christ, as we seek to honor you here. Father, I want the glory of your name to shine forth from my own life, from my family, from this church. And Father, what that means is, is, yes, working hard to rightly divide your word and to know who you are and to rejoice in the gospel at a very personal level. And what it requires for this church is that we rejoice in the gospel at a very real, truthful level. But God, may that rejoicing in the truth of the gospel not terminate in our heads or in abstract thinking or even in words on paper. God, may that get down into the bones of who we are, that we would be united, held together, living lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ for the glory of your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.